Uh, welcome in Jesus' name. It's great to be with you. It's so good to be together and to be able to, uh, to worship together. Um, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Who is pumped and ready for a new series today? Whoa, that was way better than any of the previous two series uh, services. So that's great. We, you guys just may be more awake. I'm not sure what's going on. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to jump into a new series this morning called Living Counter. And uh, this is going to be the series we're going to walk through all summer. So today we're going to kind of set things up and, uh, and journey through it a, a little bit. I'll explain a little bit more about what that means in just a minute. Um, I, I hesitate to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, and we'll see how this goes, how many of you at various times, not necessarily specifically towards this church, but church in general, you maybe get a little frustrated at times. Anybody? Anybody willing to say, yeah, that, the church frustrates me sometimes? Yeah. If it's this church, you can come talk to me. It's really okay. Let's, let's work it out. It's no big deal. But, you know, we, we do, we look around at church and it's pretty easy to get discouraged and frustrated because it seems like every four or five weeks, there's another scandal breaking because there's some celebrity pastor, those two words should not go together by the way, but there's uh, some celebrity pastor who has some kind of a failing or there's some kind of abuse scandal that's coming out in the church. Or it's just that politics has hijacked the church and the church all of a sudden is associated with one side or the other side and associated with kind of guilt by association people that you wouldn't necessarily want to be associated with, that, that kind of thing. And, and probably the, the most frustrating thing for me as a pastor is just about every statistical analysis says that materialism and immorality is exactly the same inside the church as outside of the church, which shouldn't be, but it, it's the way it is. That's the reality that we live in. Um, th there's a, a level of brokenness that's just inherent to where we are right now as a church. A.W. Tozer, some of you know that name, was a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor and writer decades ago. Tozer wrote this. Listen to these words. We may as well face it, the whole level of spirituality among us is low. We've measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. Now that was written decades ago, but he could have written it last weekend. This is the heart of what it is to be the church in America right now. And that's just inside the church. Outside the church, there's this incredible flow of culture that seems to be just carrying us away. So there are these powerful forces at work around us that are moving us away from uh, biblical truth, foundational understandings, things that have been just a given for years. Things like gender and sexuality and the way that we understand the family and uh, all of these uh, things that are happening, morality and the way that we see right and wrong in the world. There's just these, these forces that are pushing against us and they seem to be not just carrying the culture, but they seem to be carrying the church with it. What would you say if I told you that's really good news for us? It seems kind of weird, right? But see, here's the thing. The church throughout history, if you study the flow of history, the church has always thrived as a countercultural movement 
standing up against the prevailing culture that's pushing against it. That's when the church is the best. The church has never been historically healthy, vibrant, when it's flowing along with the prevailing culture. It's actually in the midst of the brokenness of culture that the church has an opportunity to truly be the church. The calling of the people of God is that we would stand up in the midst of a culture that's flowing around us. A guy named John Tyson wrote a book called The Beautiful Resistance, and he tells a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know that name. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a brilliant German theologian, finished his PhD in theology at 21. That's pretty good. Uh, In fact, uh, Karl Barth read his doctoral dissertation, Karl Barth, one of the greatest theological minds of the 20th century, and uh, commented on how brilliant Bonhoeffer was. That puts you kind of some perspective. Bonhoeffer was coming into ministry about the same time that Hitler was coming into power in Nazi Germany. And Bonhoeffer's frustration was that the church was flowing with Nazism and the prevailing culture. He was disheartened by how much of the German church was flowing along with popular culture and following after Hitler. And so Bonhoeffer and Barth and several other church leaders signed a document that became the foundational document for something called the Confessing Church. The Confessing confessing Church was the faithful church of Jesus that stood against the prevailing culture in the midst of Nazi Germany. But one of the things that Bonhoeffer realized immediately was that the pastors and the lay leaders in these German churches were not equipped to themselves stand against culture, let alone equip and empower their people to stand against culture. And so he began an aggressive training program in uh, what is generously could be called a small seminary. It was really just kind of a ragtag bunch of guys who lived together in common. But uh, there, there was 20 or 25 guys who lived together in this large house that had been donated to them called Finkenwald. And Finkenwald became the place where Bonhoeffer trained people according to the gospel. Some of Bonhoeffer's greatest works, the ones that you would probably know if you know any Bonhoeffer works, uh, works like Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship were written at Finkenwald. But as the seminary began and these people were living in common and, and uh, developing as followers of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus, there were all of these friends in Bonhoeffer's larger circle who thought like, dude, you've gone off the deep end. You're taking this stuff way too seriously. Like you are you're militant in a way that's going to push people away. In fact, one of Bonhoeffer's close friends from Berlin came to visit him at Finkenwald. And as he observed all that was happening, the discipline and, and the rhythm with which these people lived their lives as they were developing in the gospel, he came to Bonhoeffer, he pulled him aside, and he said, dude, you got to calm down, paraphrase. Like, you got to, you have to relax. Like, you're you're, you're pushing them so hard, you're going to push them away from the gospel. What are you doing? And the story goes that Bonhoeffer didn't answer the question, but instead he led his friend out down to the river to a boat, and they rowed down the river into the sound, crossed the sound, and went over to a little rise on the other side of the sound. And as they went up on the rise, they could look south and see Finkenwald and the complex there to the south. But as they turned and looked to the north, they saw an airstrip with Nazi planes taking off and landing and Nazi soldiers in training marching in formation. 
And as they looked, first to the south and then to the north, Bonhoeffer said to his friend, you have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. You, you have to be, what we do has to be stronger than this thing that's over here. This over here has to be stronger than that. This must be greater than that. Now that had to look really foolish because here's this like messed up group of guys down in this little kind of seminary who are poor and living in common and trying to figure all of this out. They're just a mess. And here is uh, the rise of the military force and power of Nazi Germany, which is just about at that point at the peak of its power. Are you kidding me? This can't be stronger than that. Of course, if you know history, today in 2021, we're talking about Bonhoeffer, we're not saluting the Fuhrer, because this was indeed stronger than that. The heart of this series is that we would be people who press into the things of God so that we would be able to stand up against the culture that's pushing against us. We are not called to flow along with the culture, but the force of culture is strong. The force of the world around us is like this rushing river that's coming at us. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know it's really easy to flow along with the river, but just the point that you decide, I wanna stop here, that gets to be really tough, right? You, you get your feet down and you're trying to get situated. And if it's a really flowing river and there's stuff in that river, you know, you stand there and just like rocks and sticks and mud and everything's just running into you and you're just like trying to stand there, let alone trying to move against the current to go the other direction. And yet the, the call of the gospel is that we would be people who don't just stand up, but begin to move against the culture. And, and yes, it can at times be difficult, but the way that God has designed the beauty of his people and his world is that for us as the followers of Jesus, it's joy-filled and exhilarating to stand up for what God has called us to be, the people that God has called us to be. Karl Barth, the Bonhoeffer's uh, contemporary, wrote, wrote this about the church. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. That's a beautiful definition of what the church should be. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of people who would immediately think of the church when they hear that definition. We, we exist to be a sign in the world that's radically dissimilar from the world around us. We live in a way that is dramatically different, and we contradict the world around us in a way that's full of promise, a way that's full of hope. We should be a beacon of light and peace and joy in the midst of a world that's flowing the other direction. So how do we get there? Like, how do we do that? Well, we're gonna take the majority of the summer to answer that question. But I wanna start today in Psalm 67. Because I think Psalm 67 gives a great picture of what it means for us to be the church in the world what it means for us to be the people of God in the midst of a culture and bring blessing to people. So if you are uh, looking at Psalm 67, uh, let me ask you to listen as Bill comes and reads for us Psalm 67. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations, that the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. <laughs> Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we come to your word today, we ask you in grace to speak to us as your people. God, would you give us the grace to hearing your truth, put our feet in the ground and stand up to recognize what it means to follow after you in the midst of a culture that's moving off in a, a very different direction. God, thank you for the love and the grace, the mercy, the blessing that you have poured out on us. God, help us to receive it and to be conduits of it to the watching world around us. Jesus, I pray right now as we look at your word that you would guard me and guard us from words that come from my own strength. God, may those words fall to the ground and become nothing. But may the words that come from your spirit remain. May they, they go into our hearts. May they penetrate and change us that we would be more like you. And so teach us, Lord, speak to us, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Although this is a short psalm, we could spend a long time in it. I'm not going to try to be exhaustive with it today, but I, I want to look at the three requests the psalmist makes. I want to allow those three requests to move into two different images that uh, are part of the way that the church is described both here in the psalm and throughout the scripture, and then ultimately the single pathway that is given to us through the psalm to stand up, to live counter in a world that pushes against us. Three requests, two images, and uh, one pathway. So Psalm 67 is framed by that very first verse. Uh, you heard Bill read it. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And then there's a stage direction in your text, most likely. It says, Selah. There's a, a pause. The psalmist is saying, as soon as you read that, stop, think, reflect. What did you just say? May God be gracious to us. May God bless us. And may God make his face to shine upon us. Three unique requests. The first request is for grace, mercy. God, 
come and uh, provide the forgiveness that we long for and we know that we need. So this is the, the psalmist recognizing our need for mercy, our need for grace. When we come to God and ask him for grace, it's not like some of the other prayers that we ask, that we, we pray. Eugene Peterson, in talking about this prayer for mercy, he, he makes this statement. Mercy, God, mercy. The prayer is not an attempt to get God to do what he's unwilling otherwise to do, but a reaching out to what we know he does do, an express longing to receive what God is doing in and for us in Jesus Christ. This is what Peterson's saying. When we say mercy to God, when we cry out for mercy, we're not wondering how he's going to respond. The, the work of mercy, the work of grace has already completely finished in Christ. So when we pray for mercy, we're praying for something that we know we can and will receive that has already been accomplished. Our prayer is that we would appropriate it. So when we say, God, be gracious to us, we're not saying, I wonder if there's going to be grace coming. What we're saying is, God, be gracious to us. How much of it can I grab in this moment? Like, how, how much grace can I get right now? Because God has already positioned towards us his grace through Jesus, through the sacrifice of Christ. He is already gracious to us. So we receive that grace as soon as we pray the prayer. God, be gracious to us. But we've, over the course of the last four or five weeks, we've been talking about forgiveness and the way that grace works. And, and one of the first things that we talked about is that that receiving of grace comes with a responsibility to give grace to others. So that prayer is a twofold prayer. God, be gracious to us so that I would be gracious to the world around me. There's a flow through that should happen when we pray for grace. We know we will receive, but we know also that we need to be passing it on to the world around us. God, be gracious to us and bless us. The second request is a request for blessing. The psalmist is saying, God, inherent in me is a need to be blessed, to have you speak act blessing over me. Gary Smalley and John Trent wrote a book simply called The Blessing, and it's an exposition effectively on our need to be blessed, to receive blessing. Smalley and Trent list five characteristics of blessing, five elements that must be present if we are to receive blessing. Listen to these, thinking about God the Father and his position towards us. The five are this, Intentional, loving, and safe touch, that we would receive touch from that one who's blessing us in an appropriate, healthy way. Words must be spoken, not simply action, but blessing contains words spoken to us. We must be valued and we must know that we're valued by the one who is blessing us. The one who is blessing us pictures a preferred future, paints for us where we might go. And finally, the one who is blessing us is committed to us in that journey. We know that they are walking with us toward that future. Real blessing contains all five of those elements. God is already positioned towards us in all five of those ways. He has come to us in Christ to touch us, to come and indwell us. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. He is uh, speaking words of blessing over us. He values us deeply. He is uh, committed to the preferred future that he has painted out in front of us. He's described it, and now he is with us in that journey. Blessing, just like grace, is inherent in the gospel. It's, it's who we are. It's who God is towards us. 
Be gracious to us and bless us. But the psalmist doesn't end there. The third request is fascinating. And may your face shine upon us. It's so great because the psalmist is not content with impersonal grace and impersonal blessing. He's not content with this idea that there is a posture of grace towards us. There is a posture of blessing towards us. What he's saying is, I want to be connected in intimate relationship. May your face turn toward me. Charles Spurgeon, in his meditation on Psalm 67, wrote wrote this. His blessing alone is not all his people crave. They desire a personal consciousness of his favor. Now listen to this. And pray for a smile from his face. I love that. It's it's like God towards us, it's not just that God's not looking at us in anger. It's not just that God is gracious towards us and blessing us. But it's that God is smiling towards us. That we look at him and we just think, yeah, he loves me and I love him. I'm with him. There's an intimate connection in relationship the psalmist is praying for. Be gracious to us, bless us, and turn your face towards us. Now consider those three things and consider the culture around us. This grace given to us freely in Christ. That a culture that says there is no such thing as right and wrong, so there's nothing you've done wrong, there's no need to ask for grace. It's fine. Everything's relative. Don't worry about it. This must be stronger than that. This blessing spoken to us with intentionality by God, that productivity and prosperity that says I can provide for myself. I don't need the blessing of God because I can do it. Why trust God when I can trust me? I'm far more trustworthy. This must be greater than that. And this intimate relationship with God the Father, his face turned towards us, that a militant individualism that says, I don't need anyone. I'm fine on my own. In fact, to admit that I need someone else is in itself a sign of weakness. This must be stronger than that. The psalmist thousands of years before 2021, is speaking a loving critique over our culture and calling us back to the recognition that we need to come back to the heart of God for us, who is full of grace, full of blessing, and whose face is turned towards us. But how's that work? Because we said at the beginning, the church is broken and messed up and frustrating. So what do we do with it? Well, as broken and messed up and as frustrating as the church is, it's fascinating biblically that Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus sees the church so much differently than we see the church. There are all kinds of images bound up in the scriptures for the church. We don't have time to go through all of them, so I just want to pull out two images uh, that I think the psalm also references. The first one is the image of the temple. We are the temple of God. Listen to verses uh, 2 through 5. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. If you go back to the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, God is with his people. 
We find in Genesis chapter 3, God the Father coming and walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He's present with them. And if you go to the very end of the story, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, you see God being present again with his people. In fact, the, uh, the, the revelation, John's vision, says that in the end there will be no need for light or lamp or sun because God will be with them. God will be dwelling among his people. From beginning to end, the heart of God, the passion of God is to be present with his people. God desires to be with us. In Exodus chapter 33, there's this fascinating picture. I, I love the image that comes out of Exodus 33. Moses has followed the leading of God, led his people out of Egypt under the power and the hand of God. He's gone up to Mount Sinai. He's received the law. He's come back down, given the law, bunch of mess with sin. You probably know the story. He comes back up and he's having this, this discussion with God. And his discussion with God, uh, bound up in this idea of the sin of the people and the presence of God, whether God's going to be with them or not be with them, uh, there's this uh, conversation they have. If you know the story, the part that you probably know is, is Moses makes this audacious request to God, show me your glory. Uh, and that's, that's powerful in and of itself, but there's this other part of the conversation that's happening. Moses says to God, he comes before God and he says to God, if you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't go before us, how else will anybody on earth know that we're your people? Like, we need your presence because it's your presence that marks us out as your people. I so wish this conversation was having, happening back down at camp, not up on the mountain, because there'd be all these people around, right? And, and you hear Moses come before God. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, how else will all the peoples of the earth know that we're your people? And all the men of Israel would be like, circumcision, maybe? Like, right? You made us do this thing. <laughs> it wasn't fun, right? Right? Or, or they would be saying like, how about the food laws? Like every time we eat, we remember we're different. Because we can't eat like normal people. Like how about the commandments? Like, there, there's this way that you've called us to live, and it's hard, and we don't like it. Or what about just Sabbath itself? The rhythm of the way that we live life is so distinct from all of the people around us. What do you mean, how else will people know that we're your people? Everybody knows we're your people because of all this crazy stuff that we do. But see, Moses got it because he knew without the presence of God, we're just following rules. It, it's not a compelling testimony to being the people of God. God's presence is required to set us apart as the people of God. The presence of God was so necessary that it became a core part of the way the law unfolded. So the people of God designed, according to the law of God, a tabernacle. The tabernacle was the dwelling of God among his people. So as the tabernacle was completed, the presence of God comes and fills the tabernacle that the people would know that God was present with them. And he moved with them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He stayed with them. And then as they established themselves in a geographic location, they built a temple. And the temple became the, the dwelling place of God. As the temple was dedicated, the Spirit of God comes in and inhabits the temple. The, the presence of God with the people of God in the temple. And as hundreds of years go by, the people of God, in a cycle of sin and repentance, begin to move further and further away from God in the way that they, especially the way they interact with the surrounding nations. And the prophet Ezekiel 
has this vision. And for the people of God, it had to be a terrifying vision. The vision was that the Spirit of God got up from the Holy of Holies and left the temple, that he was gone. And over the course of about 10 chapters, Ezekiel describes the presence of God leaving. And from that point on, the people of Israel at times had a temple and at times didn't have a temple, but the temple was always just an empty building. The Spirit of God no longer dwelt among his people. And so by the time Jesus comes on earth, there's this strange situation going on where King Herod, who's kind of like, kind of a Jew, but not really a Jew, in order to curry favor with the Jewish people, builds this magnificent temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, an incredibly beautiful building, but it was just a building. If you read Ezekiel, you know the the presence of God isn't there. It's a beautiful building, but the presence of God isn't there. And so Jesus comes, and he has this really weird relationship with the temple where he would come in because it was the center of Jewish life, but he would often be critiquing the temple, critiquing the sacrificial system, critiquing the leadership of the temple. He seemed to have a disregard for this this thing that was at the center of the people of God in order to represent the presence of God. John, when he writes about Jesus' birth, uses fascinating language. In John 1.14, John says, he came and dwelt among us. The literal word is tabernacled among us. It's temple language. Jesus becomes the temple of God, the place where the Spirit of God intersects with his people, where God dwells among his people. So as Jesus walks around, the temple literally goes with him. And so then Jesus, as he's interacting with his followers, he says to them, I need to leave, and it's better for you if I leave, because then the Spirit will come, and you'll be the temple. You're going to be the body of Christ. You're going to be my hands and feet. You're going to be the dwelling place for God. In fact, uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, makes this statement. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And listen, you are that temple. What Paul's telling us is that we, as the people of God, now bear the Spirit of God into the world around us. We are the place where the presence of God intersects with the world, which means a couple really wild things. One of the things it means is that the church, this thing that we're doing, was never designed to be a building or an organization. The church has always been designed to be a people among which the Spirit of God moves. That's what it means to be the church, that we would be a people where the Spirit of God dwells. And the other thing it means, now this is fascinating, the place that you and I should most expect to encounter the Spirit of God is not here on Sunday morning. It's not during a really powerful worship set, even though it was an awesome worship set. Good job, guys. It's not, it's not then. It's not when we get up early in the morning and we open our Bible and we, uh, we open our journal and we open our Instagram to take a picture or whatever it is that you do. Um, and, and we have this time with God. It's, it's good. All that stuff's good. Uh, like, come here, worship, spend time in the scriptures, uh, take pictures, whatever you want to do. It's great. Have at it. But the place that you and I should most expect to encounter the Spirit of God is when we interact with one another. Because we contain the Spirit of God. 
So when, when I interact with you and you interact with me, that's a holy place. Whether that's here or whether that's at home or whether it's in the neighborhood or whether it's in the aisle in the grocery store, those are holy, sacred moments where the Spirit of God is interacting with the Spirit of God, where God's temple is coming on earth as it is in heaven. When the psalmist says that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy, what he's saying is that the the Spirit of God would come and dwell among his people so that we would guide the world around us, we would bring light into the nations, we would bring grace and blessing into the nations. Because of the Spirit of God that's in us, we are the temple of God. When Jesus looks at the church, he sees the temple. And when we pray, God, be gracious to us and bless us, he says, I have and you will. You are the temple of God and you are the answer to that prayer. So one image is the temple. The second image is found in verses six and seven. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. One of the most fascinating images, and I would say uh, one of the most tender images in the scriptures, is that the church is the bride of Christ. We are his bride. I don't know if you know this, but when people fall in love, they go crazy. That's just the way it works. I, I, get to, I get to do premarital counseling, and it's so funny because people come in and they sit on the couch, and I know both of them before this often. And then they start talking, and I'm like, y'all have lost your mind. Like, are you kidding me? You're crazy. But I remember, like, I remember when Amanda and I first started dating, like, I started doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, my, my life used to be go to bed somewhere between 3 and 5 in the morning, depending on what kind of night it was, and then I'd get up at noon. Regardless of when class was, that was secondary. I'd figure that out later. I'd get up about noon. And then I meet Amanda, and she gets up early. So I'm like... I know, I'll get up early. That would be good. Like, I'll get to spend some time with her in the morning before class, before I go to class. (laughs) Who knew? I started to eat real food. Like, my diet used to be like pizza and Cheetos, mostly. And then I thought, that's probably not date food. We should probably have, like, something nicer than that. And so I began to eat real food. Like, the whole trajectory of my life started to be different. Like, it started to move a whole different direction. And, And it wasn't, I never looked at that and thought, Oh man, I can't believe I have to get up early and eat real food. Ugh. Like it was joy. It was so good. Like literally, a hundred times out of a hundred, I would do that again. Like, of course I would do that. Like it was great. I loved doing that. Do you get that's what Jesus thinks about the church? He's in love with us like that. Like the, the writer of the Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Jesus looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, a hundred times out of a hundred, I would do that again. Are you kidding me? It was such joy to be able to go to the cross in order to buy these people, redeem these people. Jesus loves the church. The problem is, the church is a promiscuous bride. Always has been. From the very, very beginning, the church tends to go after other lovers instead of remaining with Jesus. Probably the clearest picture of this is the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea, the prophet, is called by God to marry Gomer, the prostitute. 
rough name and rough marriage, right? <laughs> Gomer the prostitute. Jose and Gomer get married, and Gomer begins to do what prostitutes do. And so she is all over the place, and Hosea is wanting her, longing, loving her back to him. But every time she comes back, she goes out again into another adulterous relationship, uh, another time where she's being promiscuous. And, and there's this heartache that's, that's in Hosea, who's faithfully trying to love her and care for her and woo her, and Gomer, who's going out and kind of doing her thing. And in Hosea chapter 2, there, there's some of the most beautiful writing from the heart of God. I, I want to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. I love the way that it, it's translated there. This is God speaking about his people through Hosea. He says this, But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her out into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her, I, I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. In that coming day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. God says through Hosea, there's a day coming where the church will be my bride, not out of obligation, not because it's the right thing to do, but there's a day coming she will be my bride because of how much she loves me. She won't just follow me because I'm her master. She will cling to me because I'm her husband. And yeah, it's gonna journey through desert and the valley of trouble. There's a difficult journey that gets there, but there will be a time coming when she will cling to me, she will love me. The heart of God for his people is that we would be his bride. The church in the midst of its brokenness is beautiful because the grace of God is beautiful. We're not beautiful because of us, we're beautiful because of him. The church becomes the temple, the place where the Spirit of God dwells among the people. The bride that pictures the intimate relationship. So when the psalmist says the earth has yielded its increase and God our God shall bless us, he's not talking about material prosperity alone. In fact, he's primarily talking about this depth of intimate relationship, this, this deep connection that's, that, that produces increase, that out of intimacy there's a production that happens. This beautiful picture. That's how Jesus sees the church. And we see the church as broken and messed up. So how do we get from point A to point B? Well, the psalmist, at the very beginning, in the midst of those requests, gives us not just a request, but a pathway. May his face shine upon us. The pathway for us to become the people of God is to be people who sit under and receive the face of God. 
Um, back in January, I preached a message called What is the Church? I don't have time to re-preach it today, although that would be so much fun, and we can do that later if you really, really want. Um, but if you want to go back and, and listen to it, you can go back and find it online. Uh, we did a, a much more in-depth study of the face of God. Um, let, me, let me just give you a brief summary. Uh, basically, what we said is when the face of God is turned towards us, it's then that we receive grace and blessing and mercy and love and peace, that, the, that all of those things flow from the face of God towards us. But in addition to that, there's this corollary truth that's laced throughout Scripture that you and I bear the image of God, which means that when you and I interact with one another, in a lesser but still powerful way, we reflect the face of God to one another. Because you bear the image of God, and I bear the image of God. So when you and I interact, there's blessing that flows between us. If I say it really simply, I'd say it like this, that the, the, the grace that we pray for, the blessing that we pray for, the intimacy that we pray for, cannot be achieved alone. We need each other because we need the face of God, and we represent the face of God to one another. It's in our community, it's in the connection with one another, that we're able to stand against a prevailing culture. When all of us stand up in the river, now all of a sudden the flow begins to change and a pathway begins to be created. Will Williman, in his commentary on the book of Acts, gives a fascinating treatise on the resurrection and a testimony of the resurrection. Listen to a part of what he says. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb, or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, bummer, uh, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in human history. What he says is that you and I, as we build community in a way that is uniquely Christian, that is built around forgiveness and grace and love and mercy and blessing, as we build that kind of community, that becomes, we become the testimony of Jesus in the world. People look at us and say, that only makes sense if Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, there's no way that there'd be a people like that. Like, it's impossible. That only makes sense if Jesus is in the middle of it doing it. God calls us as a people to stand up and live counter to a prevailing culture that's flowing around us. Right now, if you look at the news, you see that secularism is on the rise. You see that individualism is on the rise. You see that tribalism is on the rise. And by all measurable factors, the church is in decline, moving towards tailspin. But if you look at history, you know that at some point in time, whether it's a week or a month or a year or a decade or de 10 decades down the road, there will be somebody else standing here and they're going to be saying, secularism is on the decline and individualism is on the decline and tribalism is on the decline, but the church of Jesus Christ is still here because the church will not fail. Jesus said himself that the, the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The question is not whether the culture is going to overcome the church. The church will be fine. The church not only will succeed, but the church will thrive. The church will remain, survive, and thrive. The question is not about the church. The question is about us. Will we be those people? Will we stand up as part of the church? 
in the midst of a culture that's flowing against us, will we stand up? And you may hear that and a bunch of you say, like, oh my goodness, that's way bigger than me. <laughs> like, I'm just little me over here. Um, I will be faithful to Jesus in my corner, but um, I, that, that stand up against culture thing, like, that's way too big for me. And if you feel a bit overwhelmed right now, can I just say congratulations, you are not qualified to stand up against culture. Way to go. Good job. Because see, here's the thing. The Bible over and over again will say things like, it's the weak and the foolish that shame the wise. That in the midst of our weakness that we see the, the supreme strength of God. It's actually your, uh, your sense of inability that qualifies you to be able to step forward in the midst of a culture that's flowing against you. A.B. Simpson loved Psalm 67. He called it the, the great mission psalm. And, uh, and Simpson, commenting on this psalm, said, God always wants to use the 300 of Gideon's army instead of the 30,000. Always. That's always his choice. That's us. What we need is not to become better at anything. What we need is the face of God and the spirit of God. The Christian Missionary Alliance, this now global denomination that has touched hundreds of millions of people over a century, began with a small group of people holding hands and praying a, a, an obscure passage from a minor prophet. They stood around and praying the prophet Zechariah. They prayed, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. By my spirit, says the Lord. And they said, God, do this in us. We're not big, we're not mighty, but we're giving ourselves to you. That's the call of being the people of God. So how do we do it? Okay, that sounds great, but what do we do? Well, that's the next nine weeks. You have to come back for that. <laughs> uh, over the course of the next nine weeks, we're going to unpack that practice by practice and uh, cultural factor by cultural factor, and we're just going to walk through it. We're going to say, what's it look like for us to be those people? And so over the course of the summer, I, I hope that you're going to have a, a lot of practical ways that you can step into it. For today, I simply want to ask you this. Are you sitting under the face of God? Is the face of God turned toward you? Because his desire is to lock eyes with you, to smile towards you, for you to feel grace and blessing and intimacy so that you can stand up, so that you can be the conduit of grace, so that you can be the conduit of blessing. He wants us to receive. And so in just a minute, the worship team's gonna come and they're gonna sing an ancient blessing over us, a blessing that is, uh, is built into how God sees the world. His face turned towards us, his grace poured out on us. And I'm simply gonna ask you to receive that. Just sit and, and listen. You can sing along. Just receive it. And then as soon as that song's done, they're going to continue to worship. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to respond. You can respond one of two ways. You may just be saying, I, I just, before God, need to just bring my heart before him. And that's great. Right where you are, just put your hands open and allow him to speak to you. But there's some of us that would say, man, I, I just, I feel like if I'm going to step into this, if I'm going to be intentional about this, I need to be prayed for, I need to pray, I need to take a step forward, I, I need to do something. And if that's where you're at, typically I would say there would be pastors and intercessors and elders around the outside, but 
but see, the thing is, I think the pastors and the intercessors and the elders, I can at least speak for one of the pastors, uh, we, we need the touch of God too, just like you do. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not by anything that's in me, and so I need that touch just like you do. So here's what I'm going to ask. If you're at that place where you're saying, I just, I, I long for that touch and I, I want to pray into that, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and move towards the outside and just find somebody else that's over there. In twos and threes, pray for each other. As the priesthood of believers, just ask God to come. And you don't have to get a request. You don't even have to get a name. It's fine. Just pray the blessing of God, the face of God into one another, that we would be filled by the Spirit so that we would stand firm. As a culture flows against us, that we would represent Jesus well in our day. So let me pray for us. I'm going to ask you to receive that blessing and then to respond as you desire.